This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Say goodbye to performance robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. It's Sunday, December 1st. I'm John Dickerson, and this is Face the Nation. It's been a quiet Thanksgiving week in Washington, which has meant fewer news alerts and a little more room for tradition. Today I will issue a pardon to a pair of very handsome birds. But the president couldn't stay entirely away from the topic that's been dominating the headlines. They've already received subpoenas to appear in Adam Schiff's basement on Thursday. The turkeys retired to a safe house, and President Trump then made a surprise trip to Afghanistan honoring another tradition by serving holiday dinner to American troops. It wasn't the only surprise. He also declared that the U.S. was back in peace talks with the Taliban. The Taliban wants to make a deal, and we're meeting with them, and we're saying it has to be a ceasefire. They didn't want to do a ceasefire, but now they do want to do a ceasefire. It was an announcement that confused many, including the Afghan government and the Taliban who nevertheless suggested they were willing to start talks again. It's like he's playing Monopoly or something. For the sake of the country, I hope he accidentally gets it right. Here at Face the Nation, we'll honor our own Thanksgiving tradition, where we'll talk with several of our favorite authors and historians about the presidency, politics, and patriotism. Laws says some 2020 Democrats spend their holidays looking for votes in Iowa. I'm here today because of love. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is one candidate searching for something more meaningful. The truth of America is that we win when we come together and show the best of who we are. But is that vision possible as the country and Washington prepare to get back to business? We'll talk with Senator Booker and we'll have political analysis on all the news of the week just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is off today. The House Intelligence Committee announced last night that their impeachment inquiry report will be ready tomorrow. Then Tuesday, the full committee will vote on whether or not to proceed to the next step, which is asking the Judiciary Committee to look at writing articles of impeachment against President Trump. We will discuss those developments, but we're also going to try to step back a little today to reflect on presidents and partisanship and the pace of an age where one development follows quickly on the heels of another. 
We will, be, we will begin, though, with campaign 2020. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker is one of the Democrats trying to win his party's nomination. And welcome, Senator. John, it's good to be here. Thank Thanks you. for coming off the campaign trail for a nanosecond to join us. You have a new ad out. And I want to talk about that ad and where we are in American politics today. Your ad comes at a time where your campaign is, you know, struggling to stay alive. You're trying to get on the next debate stage. Your message in the ad, you talk about love and unity. You've talked about that throughout. Is that message not selling? Well, it is in the sense that right now we see from local leaders in Iowa, New Hampshire, there's no candidate that has more endorsements than I do from folks that are on the ground trying to make things happen for American people. Uh, We see my favorability is now number three in net favorability in Iowa. So it's working. It's not translating to people choosing me in the polls. This is why we're pushing more ads and hope people will go to my website and make contributions so we can do more of that. But I didn't get in this election because... Uh, of any other reason that I thought the most important thing we needed in this country is try to affirm that the lines that divide us are not as strong as the ties that bind us. I'm running for president because I think the next president, especially after this person, has to be a healer, has to get us back to putting indivisible back into this one nation under God because I see this in Washington. We're so, the partisanship is becoming tribalism. We're hating each other uh, because we vote differently and, and we're not going to be able to get the big things done that we need to get done, like facing down climate change, the healthcare crisis that still persists. You need new American majorities to get that, and you need a leader that can inspire the moral imagination of this country. So President Obama had a version of that when he ran for, for the presidency, and he came to Washington. And by the time he left, he basically felt, and the Republicans have their view about him, but he felt about the Republicans, they were not willing partners. If he couldn't do it, things have gotten worse since. Why is President Cory Booker going to be able to do it? Well, two things. One is I'm glad you mentioned that he won with that message. I do think that we need the leader who can best inspire that Obama coalition. But number two is when I took over a city that was known for crime and corruption, uh, I think most of the mayors before me were indicted and convicted. People told me all the things we could not do. And um, my, my frustration was hearing all these things that people said couldn't be done. It undermined, it sort of was like a surrender to cynicism that I think we have to resist. So I'm going to come to Washington and do things differently. Uh, I'm going to break norms like this president is doing to demean, degrade, and divide. What norm are you going to break that's going to make this city, calcified as it is, suddenly break open and a group hug? Well, first of all, that's not what I'm looking for. I I think our debates uh, are are important. There there are going to have to be tough discussions. But this is what frustrates me. The majority of Americans agree on common sense gun safety reform. The majority of Americans agree on the need for massive infrastructure investment. The majority of Americans agree uh, that we need to raise the minimum wage. This is the frustrating thing is that we have this wide berth in which we agree. So our politics is not reflecting the people. And that's what I'm going to change as the next president of the United States. Is your campaign facing a do or die moment in terms of getting on the debate stage? It is facing one of those moments where, and people have responded to this before, that if you want me in this race, if you want my voice and my message, which is resonating, then, then I need help. We need people to go to CoreyBooker.com and contribute so that we can do what I see a lot of the billionaires in the race now doing, which is just running nonstop ads to boost their, their poll numbers. I'm not taking corporate PAC money. I'm not taking a lot of them. I'm, I'm running on individual contributions, and that's what we're going to need to keep going. President Obama a couple of weeks ago said the country's not really ready for revolution uh, and that what he hears coming out of the Democratic race is maybe a little bit of too much change. Where do you come down on that? If if a Democrat is elected, it's going to be after four years of, of President Trump where there's been a lot of excitement. Is the country going to be ready for a lot of Democratic version of excitement? 
Look, I, I, we need a inspiring, igniting leader next, someone who can get folks energized because I'm here because of revolutions. <laughs> the civil rights movement was a revolution. What happened at Seneca Falls was a revolution, but these are revolutions that are consistent and resonant with our founding ideals. Look, the Declaration of Independence, they knew that this was a nation that was an experiment. If you read that document, uh, uh, at the end, they actually have a Declaration of Interdependence where they say that if America's going to make it, we have to mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That's what I think we need this next uh, revolution to be about, is about this understanding that our enemies, they literally, I've read the intelligence reports, the Russians, the more we're divided against each ourselves, they are using strategies, our social media platforms more, to make us hate each other more. This next revolution has to be one where we understand we have common cause. If your kids don't have a great public school to go to, my kids are lesser off. We've got to understand that we're all in this together. One last question I want to ask Please. you. It's something you mentioned in the debate. I, I, you, you said this in the debate. We lost in Wisconsin because of a massive diminution in the African-American vote. We need to have someone who can inspire African-Americans to the polls in record numbers. The polls show right now that Joe Biden gets 49% among African-Americans. That's 34 points better than his closest rival. He yeah. seems to be doing exactly what you're saying. He's inspiring African-Americans. So who are you talking about? Well, uh, first of all, he's got the loyalty in voting right now because he's got 100% name recognition and is our former vice president. But you know this, that Barack Obama was behind Hillary Clinton amongst black voters until he won in Iowa. This race, most people have not made up their mind. And as a guy who has shown, statistically, in New Jersey, when I'm on the ballot, surges in African-American vote, I am confident I'm the best person in this race, not to just get the percent of the African-American vote, but to increase the base, increase the turnout in a significant way. That's the kind of leader we're going to need on the ticket in the next election. All right, Senator Cory Booker, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much. And we'll be back in one minute with our political panel. Don't go away. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. And we're back after a quick change with our political panel. Amy Walter is the national editor for the Cook Political Report. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Ben Dominich is the publisher of The Federalist. And Jamal Simmons is a Democratic strategist who works for The Hill TV, and he is also a CBS News political contributor. Welcome to all of you. I don't know if you can hear the rain, but it's, <laughs> yes, we're going to pour down opinions right now. Ben, I want to start with you. The impeachments, we've basically known about this story for about 11 weeks. What is the defense of the president? Is it that he did nothing wrong or is it that he did something wrong, but it's not impeachable? I think that some Republicans are taking from column A and most Republicans are taking from column B. Uh, the uh, response that you heard from Will Hurd just uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in, after the uh, hearings were winding up is one that I've heard from a lot of Republicans that say that they are uncomfortable with what the president did, but they don't believe that it rises to the level of impeachment. One of the things that I think has actually aided Republicans in this is that this has become more of a process story as it's gone along. 
along, one where they can go into different rabbit holes and directions as opposed to maybe plowing ahead with the, uh, with the argument that the transcript itself is impeachable, which was something that we heard from Democrats early on. Jamal, what Ben talks about, the rabbit hole uh, defense is what the Clinton impeachment folks did. They try and get it to be everything but about whatever the main thing is. If a Democrat stops somebody on the street and says, this is the main thing, what is the main thing? The main thing is that the president of the United States tends to use national policy and whatever he does to his own personal benefit, not for the benefit of the country. And if you look at this, not just in the Clinton uh, example, and let's remember Bill Clinton took responsibility for what it is he did in August of 1998, which gave Democrats the permission to sort of lambast him before that election, which Donald Trump is not going to do. But let's take it out of that context and look at more as the Hillary Clinton Benghazi investigation, Mm -hmm. where the Republicans branded Hillary Clinton in the course of that Benghazi uh, investigation. And she was never really fully able to get out from underneath that shadow that they cast over her in that process. Right. Clinton saying wrong but not impeachable. Donald Trump has said done nothing wrong. Don't do that. He he punishes you for trying to do that. That's right. Amy, you were down in South Carolina. There were some ads running. Yes. Anti- impeachment ads running. Um, tell me against Joe Cunningham. I right, he's a brand new congressman from this district that Trump won easily. He's Look a Democrat. He's a Democrat. If you are a Republican right now, your hope is it's putting people like Joe Cunningham, who came in in this big wave in 2018, pledging to be something different, pledging to be bipartisan. A lot of what Senator Cory Booker was talking about, right? We're going to focus on the issues. We're going to break sort of this he said, she said in Washington, and find solutions. Now the knock on folks like Joe Cunningham and other the freshmen is, you said you were coming here to fix things. Now you've just turned into a partisan Democrat, just like Nancy Pelosi or whoever else in leadership. They're hoping that that's going to work out in the election in 2020. My guess is by the time we're even in the spring or summer of 2020, we're not going to be talking about impeachment at all. And this is the most remarkable thing about this impeachment process is. This will be the third time in history the President of the United States will be impeached, and I will bet you it's not an issue at all in the 2020 election. So, Jeffrey, what Amy's saying then basically is this is just another thing after the last thing and will be superseded by the we'll other things. things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that, it seems to me, works in the President's benefit, which is this is just another thing. It's, this, it's that, you know. Not only to his benefit, if he comes out a winner, he comes out a winner. I mean, he says, I defeated this attempt to remove uh, me, your, your tribune, to the 60 million plus people who voted for him. There was a concerted attempt to remove me, and I was not removed. Therefore, I am stronger now than I was before. And by the way, going back to something that you were talking about, uh, you know, he, the argument, the best Republican argument right now probably is this, this notion that um, all foreign policy, all national security policy, all aid making is quid pro quo. Right. Like, of course, we want something back for the money that we give out. The difference here, of course, is that that usually that is done on behalf of national interests, not personal interests, but he can muddy that very, very uh, nicely if he, if he tries hard. But, John, let's not, let's, let's not get past this. Impeachment stains are really hard to wash out. Um, you know, we've had three impeachment processes that occurred, and neither Al Gore... Gerald Ford nor Horatio Seymour, who was the Democratic nominee in, 1960, in 1868, were able to take the White House after their party, part, president of their party, went through an impeachment process. It's very hard. And with the Bill Clinton impeachment, while, while the Democrats were able to hold on to the, or win the Congress back, keep in mind, 
not just Al Gore. Hillary Clinton ran for president twice and wasn't able to get the White House. It's very hard. So we haven't seen an incumbent president run for election before. So we really just don't know how it works out. At the, same, at the same time, I think it's impossible to say, to Jeff's point, that the president getting uh, the approval of a bipartisan majority of the Senate to, against removing him from office, one which would include potentially the votes of Joe Manchin right. and uh, and potentially other Democratic senators as, as well, is not something that he's going to point to and say, look, they've just been trying to get me all along. This is all just a big, you know, uh, hoax. This is and all they right. lost and I and won. He lost claims it's all about losing yes. Yes. From right. the Senate. Except that opinions of this president don't move no <laughs> matter don't. what happens. That's what I'd say. That how you feel about... Uh, Donald Trump will tell you how you feel about this impeachment process. If you have disliked him all along, you think this process has been above board and it's exactly what Democrats should be doing. If you like him, you think that this process has been a witch hunt. And really very little that's going to come up between now and the election is going to change your opinion of that or of him. And so I don't know that it helps him necessarily to say, I won because they're coming to get me. Opinions about him are as he's as unpopular in many parts of America today as he was before the impeachment process started. And he's as popular in places where he was before the impeachment process started. Jeffrey, you, the Atlantic has a cover on um, the Civil War and, and how to avoid one mm -hmm. in this country. This seems to be ground zero for the moment of the Civil War until the ne we have the next fight over something right. else. Right. What, what's, your, what's your feeling about those larger clashing forces in America and how they play out right. through this. A a impeachment is just a symptom of the Trump presidency, which is just a symptom of larger cultural and political divides and even regional divides in, in, in some ways. Yeah, the, the special issue of the Atlantic we did is, is, is we're not suggesting that it's 1860 right now or even 1850. We're just suggesting that demographic changes, changes in the way we communicate with each other, changes in a whole raft of, of areas have made it harder and harder to think of this country as a unified force, where Americans no longer, to borrow from Jim Mattis, uh, Americans don't seem to have affection for each other in the way that they used to, and we're just trying to understand that. And again, you know, Trump, for all the, the obsession that we have with talking about Trump every day, Trump is a symptom of, of larger issues, larger dislocations, larger changes in the way we talk to each other, larger ways in the way we understand common reality, what used to be common reality. And there's downsides for the world of that mm -hmm. type of divide within the American nation. As you look around the globe today, we see all sorts of different things happening. We see what's happening in Hong Kong. We see what's mm -hmm. happening in Iran. We see what's happening in the degradation of the state in Mexico. We see North Korea. These are all areas where I think we should be focused on them. They're incredibly important. And yet the focus in Washington has been on this impeachment battle, and I think it's degraded the conversation that we ought to be having about these very important human rights issues. Well, you know, in 1964, Robert Kennedy went to the convention floor and gave a speech about America being strong abroad so that we can handle our problems at home. It seems like now we're in the reverse. Even Kamala Harris has said this. America needs to deal with its racial and, and economic issues at home in order so that we can be strong abroad. And until we not just deal with Donald Trump, but we deal with the economic dislocation of so many communities in this country, it just seems like we're never going to be able to assert the American leadership that we're all used to. We have over years to, to, to do both things at the same time. We have been able to, to project power, project our influence, and also deal with some of the issues that we have now. We're in a unique position in that we seem totally paralyzed. Everybody knows we're paralyzed. We're going to have to go out the door in a second, but Amy, I'm going to give you the difficult task of uh, Dan Bowles wrote today about the Democratic yeah, race. Perfect. The Democratic presidential campaign has produced confusion rather than clarity <laughs> right. in the 40 seconds we have left. 
Clarify what the state of the Democratic race is for us. Uh, the state of the Democratic race is that you have a national frontrunner named Joe Biden who's losing in the first two contests. And in traditionally, the first, the winner of the first two contests, Iowa and New Hampshire, and the Democratic side has gone on to win the Democratic nomination. Where Joe Biden succeeds is in the next two states, Nevada and South Carolina, which are populated with more voters of color. And so we're in a situation right now where we have four candidates right now who have the prospect, at least, of being calling themselves a frontrunner. But by the time we get through South Carolina, we could have none of them as the frontrunner, in that they all can claim a piece of it. Right, which is when Mike Bloomberg thinks he's going to turn it. That's the end of it for all of us. Thank Thanks you. to all of you. Thank you. And we'll be right back in a moment. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. For six years, billionaire philanthropist David Rubenstein has hosted dinners for lawmakers at the Library of Congress, each featuring a modern historian. Rubenstein has published a collection of the dialogues in The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. We spoke with him last week and asked why knowing the past is so important to understanding the present. The theory of history is that we can learn from what we made mistakes about before and what we did right before, and then maybe we can do better things in the future. Civilization is all about improving things, and if we don't improve in the past, how are we really advancing civilization? When members of Congress come to these gatherings, it's bipartisan, do you find that they ask questions with a specific intent because they want to use it in their own lives? It's like an era of good feelings when the dinners occur. There's no bickering. Members from the opposite parties sit together. Members from the opposite house sit together. And it's a, you wouldn't know how rancorous the uh, atmosphere is in other parts of Washington, but it's like a time where they put a truce down and they come together. Do you see anything or have the historians been able to give these members of Congress any guidance on how they can break out of what they all agree is a, a time of hyperpartisanship? I don't think the historians are trying to lecture members of Congress of what they should do. They're just saying, I wrote these books, let me tell you about these great figures, and you take the lessons away from them that you will. Have you had a moment or a time in your career where the lessons of history have really been applicable? Well, as a young man, when my hair was dark and I was much thinner, I worked in the White House under Jimmy Carter. I wish I had as much knowledge of history uh, then as I do now. He was a disruptor of the system. He had won the presidency when people didn't think he would. And they came to Washington saying, we're not going to do things the old way. Would a little lessons of history have been helpful to the Carter team when they came in? Well, I think in hindsight, we made some mistakes. And I would take the blame for it as long as, as well as other people who were involved in the system as well. But we did some very good things. Uh, we did say we're going to shake up Washington. And, and Jimmy Carter came up with a very unique idea. He said, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not from Washington. And that was unique at that time. And he kind of used that populist appeal. Um, when we came to Washington, we probably didn't have as much breadth of knowledge of people who had served in Washington before. But in hindsight, President Carter was president for only four years, and we did an enormous number of things. And today, the amount of legislation we passed in that four-year period of time dwarfs what's getting done today. 
one of the things you've asked these historians when you've talked to them is if you could talk to one former president and ask them a question, which one would it be? So for you, what former president, if they were alive today, would you, would you want to talk to and what would you ask them? In my view, in our long history in this country, the greatest American without doubt is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln held this country together because it wasn't obvious to people that the country should stay together. I'm not sure any other person who elected president would say to the South, no, we're not going to let you go away. So I would ask him two questions if I had a chance to have dinner with him. One, why did you feel it was so important to have the South stay as part of the country? Why not let it go away? And secondly, were you convinced that ending slavery through the Emancipation Proclamation was the only way to win the war? And are you pleased that you ultimately freed the slaves? And why did you not do it earlier? When you look at Lincoln, he came into that job with a kind of a patchwork of experience and a lot of failures. What do you see in his background that that, uh, tells us about Lincoln's success? He probably didn't have more than a second grade education. He taught himself how to read. He loved to read, but he really didn't have a classic college education. He didn't really go to law school. He took the people who were more likely to be president or presidential nominee in his party, and he brought them together in his cabin. And he really took the best of their knowledge. And in the end, those people idolized him. Abraham Lincoln's great talent was that he didn't take himself too seriously. He had a great sense of humor. He knew how to write extremely well. He had a way with words that really no president has really had since that time. Which president, when you started becoming uh, a presidential historian yourself and so interested in them, which one was the first one that you really got turned on to the presidency about? I think President Kennedy was somebody that took my generation and said, come in and give back to your country. Ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country. It inspired me to go into public service, and many people in my generation were similarly uh, inspired. And you've dedicated your life to public service in one form or another. What do you think is the state of that notion in America, the ask-not notion? I think Americans want to make the country a better country, but I think it's what has changed from President Kennedy's time is that many people think you can help your country as you can without having to go into government service. There are so many NGOs today, so many ways to serve your country in nonprofit areas that are, do not require you to be on the government payroll. But I also think many people in our country don't feel that government service is as noble a thing as it once was. And in fact, we tend to denigrate government servants much more than we do. Is there danger? Than, than we should, I should say. Is there danger to that? that there is. For example, uh, it's very easy to make fun of members of Congress, and it's, you can always get a joke by making fun, fun of members of Congress. They're relatively modestly paid. They have an incredible lifestyle in terms of how much work they have to put in, and they're under enormous amounts of pressures, and we don't realize the burden they often face. But we, we, you can still make fun of very few people in our country. You can make fun of lawyers. You make fun of private equity people. You might be able to make fun of uh, members of Congress, and you won't get criticized for making fun of members of Congress. But actually, they're pretty good public servants, and we should uh, honor them more. I think we should actually pay them more. And we'll have more from our interview when we come back. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today.
Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue with our conversation with David Rubenstein. You've had success in the public sector, private sector, philanthropy. Let's say you were thrust into the job. As the president, what do you think the hardest part of the job would be? I would want to surround myself with people who I thought had experience, who had the right motivations, were coming into public service because they wanted to help the country and not for any other purpose. I'd want to make sure I recognize that members of Congress are an equal branch of government and want to work cooperatively with them. And also want to recognize that the judiciary is also an equal branch of government. And what it says also is very important in terms of how the government is to be governed. But also, the most important thing is persuading people to do things that you think are the right things to do. And you have persuade people by being honest with them being uh, forthright with them, bringing them along in a way that I think makes people feel they are getting something from the, from the negotiation. A good negotiation is one where both sides feel they're getting something. They're not completely happy with it, but they're getting something out of, the, uh, out of it. How do you think Donald Trump has done on that front? Well, I think it's very difficult to judge a president this early, to be honest. I think most historians would say, give me 40 years after the presidency to evaluate whether the person's done a good or bad job. Given what you know about the presidency, when you hear it talked about in presidential campaigns, is there a part of that conversation that you say, you know, this is nice, but it's really not what the job is? Well, when you're running for president of the United States, your job is to get elected to some extent and do so in a reasonably honorable way. You can't say things that are ridiculous, I think, but you should do so in a reasonably honorable way. But you have to recognize that what people say in a campaign rarely can get implemented so easily. So if you say, I want to have a certain type of tax, I want to change the law this way, it's not that easy to do. You have to deal with Congress. And so I think it would be a good idea if people were to propose things that are realistically possible and not, not to ignore the impossibility of doing something great, but sometimes you have to have bold ideas, and bold ideas are good, but sometimes some things are just not going to happen, and you can get people excited about the prospect of it, and you're really going to disappoint people. If you could give the American story to every presidential candidate, what lesson would you hope they'd draw from it? I would say to all presidential candidates, learn more about American history, learn about the things we've done right and wrong in the past, do not think you have um, the sole knowledge of what the right thing to do is, and bring other people into the equation. Make sure you bring into the, um, to your um, proposals about what you want to have done and what you're into your administration if you're elected, people that have a sense of history. Um, very often, many of our presidents have met with historians because they want to learn what previous presidents did. And I think that's a good thing, and I think uh, learning what our previous presidents did, the good and bad, is a good way to, to learn how to be a good president. Rubenstein's book was published by Simon & Schuster, a division of the CBS Corporation. The full interview is on our website, facethenation.com. We'll be back in a moment with our book panel. The NCAA women's basketball had an incredibly successful season, and now your favorite players from the 2023 to 2024 NCAA season will be in the WNBA. To all our veteran fans, welcome back. And to all the new fans joining, welcome to the W. This season, watch as proven legends Brianna Stewart, Asia Wilson, and Sabrina Ionescu continue their dominance, while rookies Caitlin Clark, Cameron Brink, and Angel Reese prove themselves on a WNBA court. The WNBA is redefining basketball on their own terms this season, keeping the game and players front and center while celebrating the intersection of identities and perspectives that align with fans. Welcome to the W. You're in for some world-class basketball. 
We turn now to a conversation with four authors whose books focus on presidents and patriotism and politics. Ruth Marcus is the author of a new book that looks at one party's mission to control the Supreme Court, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Michael Duffy is the co-author of The President's Club, Inside the World's Most Exclusive Fraternity. Susan Page is the author of The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty, and the upcoming Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Ark of Power. Our final panelist, John Meacham, joins us from Nashville. His latest book is The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. It examines national divisions at critical times in our history. John, I am going to start with you. You wrote recently that this impeachment question uh, tells us something larger. It's not just about a president. It tells us something about the country. So what are the stakes right now? Folded at moments of enormous existential crisis over the direction of the country. Uh, Andrew Johnson and the verdict of the Civil War. Were we really going to op- act on the implications of the victory, of, of the Union victory at Appomattox? Uh, President Nixon was coming with Vietnam and, and the questions about the nature of, of the country. In many ways, in fact, I think we can think of the modern founding of the country as 1964-65 with the Civil Rights Act. We've only governed this particular polity for 55 years or so, and, and Vietnam and, and that era was a period of enormous tension. And the Clinton era was, in a way, a precursor to this one, where we were returning to an 18th and 19th century system of partisan media. It was, to some extent, a, a battle over generational power. And now we face this wildly unconventional president who is actively and overtly putting all the norms that so many of us were accustomed to on trial. And so we have these forces uh, in American life that are perennial xenophobia, extremism, racism, nativism, isolationism. They ebb and they flow in American life. They always have. And right now they're flowing. The task of the country is to get them to ebb. And Ruth, uh, what John describes and sets the table for there nicely, it feels like we had a bit of a preview of what we're going to see with impeachment here, which, which is what you write about with the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. Do you see those, those parallels? Um, indeed. And I think they're um, disturbing parallels that mainly involve the reflexive and automatic and unrelenting partisanship of our time that, that John and others have referred to. It, Republicans complain that we can't take impeachment now seriously because Democrats were talking about impeaching the president even before he was sworn in. Correct. Republicans claim that we couldn't take the allegations against Justice Kavanaugh seriously because Democrats were out to get him from the start and he's only arose at the last minute. Correct. But in both situations, the question is, what, were there serious allegations, are there serious allegations in the case of impeachment against the target of Democratic ire? And are we capable of taking those allegations seriously, or do we so automatically go to our corners uh, that we're not capable of rising above partisanship? I think that's a really open and serious question. One, Michael, you wrote about this extraordinary thing. Bill Clinton, when he was going through this, called Richard Nixon. So the idea that that two presidents 
uh, across that period of time would have a conversation. I mean, you, you can't imagine Donald Trump calling Bill Clinton. That. No, I think Clinton admired Nixon's just resilience, the fact that he gutted it out. And the famous quote from the Clinton uh, impeachment experience was, we'll just have to win this, when it was clear that he, he had done whatever he had done. And we're just going to have to win this. And I think he looked to Nixon and Nixon's experience as a model, because Nixon fought right up until the time the smoking gun came out, and then, of course, his party abandoned him. Both men were survivors, uh, and both men fought like the Dickens to hold on to power until they, you know, in, in Nixon's case, couldn't. One other thing about that relationship, uh, it would fall to Clinton, of course, to eulogize uh, Nixon in 1994 when he finally died, 20 years after he left office. And, and, and Clinton's famous remark at the eulogy was, may the days of judging Richard Nixon um, on just one you know, part of his life be brought to a close, which, of course, was a benediction and a prayer for him and all presidents. Right. He, yes, he was making an appeal for the long-sweeping view. And for all the presidents. Right, who would right. Afterwards. Uh, um, Susan, I want to ask you about another part of this drama, which has really struck me, is the is during the, the uh, testimony in front of the House Intelligence Committee, a lot of the witnesses did not just start with the facts of the case. They, you know, in writing, we talk, you know, talk about going up to 30,000 feet. They talked about the role America plays in the world. They talked about their immigrant backgrounds. What did you make of that? You know, this was a, the, the impeachment hearings were in many ways kind of a dispiriting uh, uh, episode, because, both because of the allegations being made and because of the partisan response to them. But I, had, I thought it was inspirational to hear from these witnesses, career public servants, who started by talking about their immigrant backgrounds. Uh, two of them uh, immigrants, one of them the child of immigrants, families that had fled uh, Nazi Germany, had fled the Soviet Union, had come here for greater economic opportunity, loss of a class structure. And they talked about how grateful they were to America for taking them in, giving them this opportunity. And that was one reason they had chosen the path uh, of service that they had. Uh, I thought that was um, I thought that was the best moment. It was a reminder of what Americans want to protect about our country uh, that seems often just so battered in these times. Right. In this room is not just the behavior of a president, but, but questions of bedrock, basic American values that everybody is also fighting over. John, I want to get your thoughts about the task before the House Judiciary Committee this week, which is to start looking at the Constitution and what guidance it gives uh, for this inquiry. What wisdom do you think the the document or that summer in Philadelphia um, should give us in terms of thinking about this? The impeachment clause was added in part because George Mason uh, of Virginia argued that shall any man be above justice? That was the that was the central question. And the question that the framers tried to argue and and answer was that there had to be a check and a balance on the executive. The entire insight, remember, of the the guiding insight of the Constitution was that we would screw everything up. And we've done everything we can since then to prove them right. Uh, It's it's a fundamentally human document uh, informed by a kind of Calvinistic insight that we would be driven by appetite, we'd be driven by ambition, we were shaped by shortcoming and sin, and therefore sovereignty had to be divided. Power could not be, all power could not be given to any one element in the Republican, lowercase r, contract. And so impeachment was a hugely important element there. The article is very short. Uh, it's about treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. The latter phrase comes from the English common law. And as Gerald Ford famously remarked, uh, a high crime and misdemeanor is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives says it is at any given moment. 
And this generation, this um, group of members of Congress, now has to face a genuine test. Are they going to follow the facts, or are they going to, to use Ruth's phrase, are they going to reflexively be partisan and interpret reality not as they see it, but as they wish to see it? Ruth, one of the things is that that we still don't know what the actual position is because you can say, well, there are these acts, but they don't raise to the level of of high crimes and misdemeanors. But the president is saying these acts weren't even bad in the first place. You've been studying the idea of originalism, the original public meaning of the Constitution. Does that give us any guidance here for how to interpret this moment? Uh, The guidance is very Fordian in the sense that it is really a political question that is up to the political branch. But yes, the framers were entirely worried about precisely the kind of event that we're talking about here, foreign influence, the misuse of presidential power for public gain and political advantage rather than for the public good. If, If you were going to... The question that I would have for Republicans is... If this does not rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor or look a lot like the framers' conception of bribery, um, what does? And the, the, the thing that I would say that gives me some concern here, I think the facts are so serious that the House was really constitutionally obliged to launch an impeachment inquiry. But we have now gone through three of these in our lifetimes. And impeachment was supposed to be, and it should be, a breaking case of emergency inquiry. And now I worry that we will unleash it as just just another political tool. And, Michael, it's happening in an election year, which we haven't seen before. No, it's always in the past happened in a second term, at least in, in, in our lifetime. So um, this allows the Republicans to argue somewhat justifiably that, look, we're going to have an election in a year. Just wait. You can make up your decision and let the people decide. And they're deploying that almost you know, daily or hourly. That raises another thing about John's test of Madisonian democracy. We're all hyperdosing on this stuff. And, and, you know, depending on whether you're like us and you have to drink it every day or you're you're just following along informally, it can seem at times that this is the worst that the country has ever faced. But I suspect that between a whole number of times, 1777, 1863, 1932, there have been other difficult times. What's different now is that we're, how we're experiencing it that we are it, it, we're self-arming for division because so much of the information we get is coming to us through our devices, and those devices are weaponized to sort of alienate and divide us. Um, and that is a difference, in, in certainly between this and the last impeachment and all the ones that have come before. And I think this is, this is the test of Madisonian democracy, that you know, we're meant to you know, think, have our better angels work at all levels here, but at every turn, we are being fed uh, information that is, uh, divides us rather than brings us together. And that is a real test of whether we can survive. And we're self-satisfying ourselves by, by continuing to drink that ourselves. Susan, uh, D- Michael just described the state of affairs. Nancy Pelosi didn't want to go down this impeachment road, felt like she had to. What, what is the state of the Nancy Pelosi view of the world as she tries to hold on to power at a time uh, that we're in in this volatile moment. Well, this is very much what Nancy Pelosi predicted would happen when she was holding off some Democratic instincts to impeach the president uh, months ago, years ago, um, since soon after his election, which is that it would be divisive for the country and you shouldn't go forward unless you could get bipartisan support. Uh, but then you had the Ukraine phone call come out. And I think at that point she determined, she decided that you had no option, as Ruth was saying. You had, if not this, what would be impeachable had to go forward. She has tried to keep the focus narrowly on the Ukraine matter, to keep the timetable 
going incredibly fast. The speed of this impeachment inquiry is really quite breathtaking with the idea that we're going to see articles of impeachment perhaps this week. We're going to see a vote of the House before the end of the year. And then it goes to the Senate. And I think the instinct in the Senate is also, let's do this and get it off our plate. Michael, before we go, I want to ask you about the 2020 election. Um, I don't know it was whether when I worked with you or somebody when we were back at Time Magazine said every election is about one question. Maybe they didn't say that, but I'm going to <laughs> What is the question of this election? Well, all elections are about, you know, hope or fear, and whether you, or, or about change, and whether you hope for change or fear it. Um, uh, I think at the moment this is, well, will be, is whatever they think about impeachment in a year, given what Amy said in the previous segment, this will be a referendum on Donald Trump, no question. And uh, impeachment may play into that. Both sides think it's going to help them. That's what's so interesting. The Democrats think they have to push this through and have this test and show that they have done it in order to help build their support in their base. Republicans, I think, increasingly think this will build our base as well and turn out the people who believe I, Donald Trump. I disagree. I think both parties think they hope it helps them. Mm-hmm. I think both parties fear it's going to hurt them. And I think at this point it is impossible to figure out exactly what the politics of this issue is going to be. Let me uh, ask the final question to you, John Meacham. Uh, David Rubenstein suggested it takes 40 years before you can weigh in on a president. What's your view on that? And we should let people know that you weighed in on George Herbert Walker Bush before that timeline. You know, 25. Michael Beschloss, uh, our friend, says 25 years. And so I'm a Beschlossian uh, on this important question. And I I think that's about right. Uh, 40 years is biblical. And so therefore we should be for it. Uh, But uh, but I think 25 at least worked for me. And I would say, uh, if I may, uh, President Bush died a year ago yesterday. And when you think about however imperfect a man he was in, 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 in life and politics, we're all, we all have our problems. But he really embodied a kind of public service that seems incredibly remote now. It's almost as though we're talking about Agincourt when we think about a man who, uh, a Republican president who signed the Americans with Disabilities Act and managed uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall with uh, such grace and restraint. And I think that when we think about that everything is cataclysmic and we're always at the edge of a cliff, 25 years ago we had a president that's almost unimaginable now until, as he would put it, we imagine it again. And so, you know, the first election we had in this country that was about the soul of America was 1800, when Thomas Jefferson ran saying we needed a revolution to get back to 1776. So if they were talking that way then... It's not surprising that we're talking this way now. All right, John Meacham, thank you so much. And thanks, all of you, for being with us. We are going to ask Ruth to stick around for a few more minutes, and so you do that, too. We'll be right back. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. We're back with Ruth Marcus to talk more about her book, Supreme Ambition, Brett Kavanaugh and the Conservative Takeover. Hi. Welcome back, Ruth. Thank you. <laughs> so... Some people may think of this as what they saw through their television screen, which were faces in a room with a bunch of senators. But you 
you sketch a story of titanic forces in America. Bring some of those forces into the story to remind people of really all that's going on in this drama. Sure. Well, as you say, this is not everybody was transfixed for a few weeks in the fall of 2018. Um, but this is a story that stretches back decades, literally. It's, this is a 30 years war on behalf of Republicans and conservatives to finally cement a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And that is the opportunity that they had with the resignation of Justice Anthony Kennedy and with the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. And as the problems arose with the Kavanaugh nomination, Republicans rallied around him in part because of some of the forces of partisanship that we've been talking about previously, but also because this was their moment to finally achieve this goal of 30 years. And Brett Kavanaugh was too big to fail. They were not going to allow him to do that. And so what I tell in the book, Supreme Ambition, is the story of how uh, Everyone from the White House counsel who refused to take a phone call from the president, who was trying desperately to reach him. Don McGahn was worried that the president was going to tell him to yank the Kavanaugh nomination. He didn't want to hear from him. He didn't want to take a call from the most powerful man in America. He told his deputy, I don't talk to quitters. Um, it's a story of how uh, the FBI and senators, Republican and Democrat, refused to pursue leads that w- might have jeopardized the Kavanaugh nomination. And it's the story of what the implications are of this nomination for our country. Because long after we're done with impeachment and long after the 2020 election, Donald Trump's legacy is going to be the judges that he put on the federal courts and on the Supreme Court, and it is going to be the triumph of conservatives, which explains why they have stuck with him for so long. And that's a 30 to 40 year, spending it depending on the lifespan of the judges, 30 to 4 year impact on American life, not four or eight years of a presidency. No, it is a long time, and Donald Trump um, has been going around and boasting about how his judges are younger than Obama judges. (laughs) They're going to be around for a while. Let's talk about Don McGahn, the White House counsel. Really interesting. You just you just talked about an act of insubordination. There's been a lot of talk about when and when a staffer can and can't be insubordinate. He is perhaps, and you tell me what you think, the most powerful and uh, beneficial advisor the president has. Wouldn't uh, maybe have gotten elected without him. So a couple things. Right here in this very building at the Jones Day Law Firm, Don McGahn helped to orchestrate the thing that probably among everything else helped Donald Trump get elected president, which was creating a list of Supreme Court nominees. Not a, not a surprise to have a short list, hugely Trumpian and never done before to have a list that was made public. Guess who was not on that list? Brett Kavanaugh. Made but public during the campaign. Made public during the campaign. And Brett Kavanaugh managed, uh, with the help of his friends, including Justice Kennedy, to make his way onto that list. And with the help of Don McGahn, who is a fascinating figure, the most consequential White House counsel in history, both Donald Trump's uh, greatest help in terms of this legacy, helping to build the legacy along with the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, that will outlast this president and that he will be proudest of in the long run, but also um, in the Mueller investigation, and we still see conversations about whether we'll ever get his testimony on that, the president's um, greatest problem, because he testified and uh, basically created the elements of the obstruction case against the president with Mueller. 15 seconds. The reason the list was so important is it showed conservatives that Donald Trump was... Somebody who they could trust and to be taken seriously and that he would achieve what 
Republican presidents before him had not managed to achieve and had squandered. Mitch McConnell thinks that's why he's president. Ruth Marcus, Indeed. thanks so much. It's a great book. Supreme Ambition is out Tuesday. It was published by Simon & Schuster, a division of the CBS Corporation. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. And thank you to the Jones Day Law Firm for the facilities here on Capitol Hill. Margaret will be back next week for Face the Nation. I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were New Jersey Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Cory Booker and philanthropist David Rubenstein. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. Or Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.